When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes Stevie Chick to discuss Black Flag and the rise of hardcore punk. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Stevie Chick, author of Spray Paint the Walls, the story of Black Flag. Stevie, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Nate. Sure, it's a pleasure. This, I gotta warn you, Black Flag is very, very dear to my heart. I grew up on this band, all my best friends grew up on this band, and a lot of my personal feuds and vendettas with my best friends and bandmates are tied up in the feuds that Greg Ginn seems to spew everywhere. So <laughs> <laughs> there's some conflicting, complicated emotions here, but it's a great book. What drew you to write about Black Flag? Well, it's it's a funny thing. Um, I, I uh, It's my second book, and, and my first book I, I was kind of lucky enough to fall into. Uh, a friend of mine was uh, contracted to write a biography of Sonic Youth, and uh, three months before he was due to submit the text, which he hadn't even begun, uh, he found out that he was able to move to Australia with his family. And so he needed someone to write his Sonic Youth book. And, and I stepped in and, and I wrote my first book uh, in three months straight from a cold start. Uh, I'd done no research. I was just a massive Sonic Youth fan. So I, I piled through that very quickly. Uh, and I dare say it possibly reads a bit like it was written quite quickly uh, and then uh, after that came out my I, I went to sort of have lunch with my publisher and he just sort of pinged some ideas at me for for other books that they might want to do and uh, he suggested Black Flag and I, I was a huge Black Flag fan and uh, but I, I was a huge fan but kind of like the history of the band and the the, the, the sort of inner conflicts within them it was kind of obscure to me at this point i think um i i'm basically of the age where you know i was 16 when nirvana's nevermind came out and it was a massive watershed for me and uh as i started getting into this music uh i started being really interested in the music that influenced it and various of the the, the uk music papers sort of did lists or charts or 
posters that that sort of filled you in on the records that you needed to go check out or the bands you needed to explore to find out exactly where this kind of underground uh, over uh, overcoming thing happening in 1991 where it started and uh, Black Flag was a key band for you to check out but this is 1991 so we don't have Spotify uh, we don't have YouTube there's no way really to hear a record unless it's being played on the radio which um, may surprise you but Black Flag wasn't being played on the radio very often or, or it's <laughs> shocker you take the big plunge and you just buy a record and there was a uh, there was a local record store that, that had a bunch of uh, secondhand vinyl. Uh, I picked up Zen Arcade by Huskadu for £10 there, which is still the, the best bargain I ever got. Uh, but they also had a copy of Damaged, which I bought for a fiver. And, um, and that was my entree into the band. And I loved the band and I loved their music. And I read Get In The Van by Henry Rollins when it, you know, when, when, when it came out and, I didn't really know a lot of what happened. So when my publisher suggested it to me, I was thinking, well, here we go. This is a, a great underground story, uh, a, a, yeah, a band who achieved amazing things. I was already aware of, of their sort of grand achievements, if you like. But I didn't really understand how messy like the dissolution of the band was and, and how difficult a lot of the relationships had been. So I just thought, it's, this is going to be a great project. So I basically get in touch with all of these people and they'll, they'll just take absolute pleasure in telling me uh, what a glorious experience it was and how glad they are to have invented underground rock in America and all of these sort of things. And then when I started, you know, actually was searching the book and reaching out to do interviews, I discovered that I'd essentially like just stepped in a total like snake's nest of uh, a viper's nest of, of ill feeling and, um, grudges and and sadness uh so yeah that's basically it. I, I i went in thinking it was it was going to be an easy job it is it is funny like um and until until i managed to go through therapy and learn not to do this uh, i used to look up online interview uh, reviews of my book and, oh. uh, and and quite often it would be people from uh your fair nation which is somewhere i'm incredibly fond of saying why is why has a limey written this book? And, and I always wanted to reply because I'm the only person stupid enough to undertake in this project. Like, <laughs> everybody else, every American obviously was like, yeah, that sounds like a good story, but that's going to be quite hard to do. So, um, so yeah, there we go. That's, uh, that's, that's the first 10 minutes of the interview is a lot of self-pity on my part. But <laughs> I'm honest with you. That's, that's how it started, mate. Well, that is a key black flag trait is honesty. Um, <laughs> and misery. Yeah, and misery, despite all the yeah, you you walked right into the vibe, the dreaded Greg Ginn vibe. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And Definitely. yeah, it's and so yeah, I'm older than you and was a, a fan in the eighties and and you know, was ge geographically far removed from the underground. I was in the middle of the Texas panhandle. Right. So if the Minutemen were corn dogs in San Pedro, I mean we were beyond corny and but we could find black flag records and and you know it spoke to us as part of that punk thing and yeah and then and we got to kind of watch sst bloom with records like who's produced in arcade all of which you know comes out of greg Gunn's record label sst and then we got to watch it all fall apart um before our eyes and gave up on the whole thing and then nirvana comes along and for a brief minute you know, I remember that somebody wrote, we won. <laughs> won what? I don't know, as it turns out. But yeah, for a minute, 
we won. And I guess what we won was the opportunity for kids like you to hear this music and for these stories to get told. So thank you for continuing that tradition and telling the story because this was an important movement, but it was very underground. And the reaction of the authorities was immediate and brutal. And we'll get to yeah. that. But, but let's start with with the context that Black Flag came out of. Tell us a little bit about the Hollywood or the California, Southern California punk scene before Black Flag came along. Of course. Yeah, there was uh, obviously there's, there's a sort of scene happening in Hollywood. Um, uh, a lot of it kind of centering around a place called The Mask, which was a club run by the late and inestimably great Brendan Mullen, uh, who who ran the club and uh, and who spoke to me for the book and was was possibly even more excited than I was that it was going to uh, make publication. He was he was an incredibly encouraging and uh, colourful interviewee who, who achieved an awful lot and in, indeed wrote several really fantastic punk tomes of his own, which I recommend everyone checks out. But so you had this kind of um, you know uh, Hollywood's punk rock scene with bands like the germs and x and and all of these really interesting bands they're all quite weird and quite arty and kind of bohemian uh and it's it's really about a million miles away from what was going on in hermosa beach which is where uh black flag were based and and indeed the Minutemen and, and the descendants as well in that vague southern californian suburbia it, it's incredibly far removed from hollywood and um you, you you know the guys in in black flag weren't wearing crazy makeup or anything they they looked very down to earth and 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 looked like they they'd sort of been dressing at local thrift stores and stuff like that uh which but what they was had. The, sorry which they had which, exactly this is it i mean they they were operating on a on a tight budget and you could see it, but they, they made a virtue of that. But it is interesting to me. It's like uh, if you go to Hermosa Beach now, it's it's incredibly suburban and yuppie and uh, and very conservative and, and, you know, relatively, what I would say it's got kind of that sinister vibe which uh, has come to the fore in American politics for the last four or five years. But um, in the late 70s, it still had like the uh, the after effect of kind of of a, of a hippie movement, a, a bohemian movement that was within uh, Hermosa Beach. In fact, there was a, a jazz cafe called the uh, the Lighthouse Cafe, uh, where uh, artists like Dexter Gordon, Roland Brasson, Kirk, Art Pepper, Youssef Latif, they all played there. Um, and the booker was a gentleman called Ozzy Kadena, who had been the AR man at Savoy Records before moving to uh, California in 1974. Uh, and Ozzy's son, Des, would end up being, I believe, the third singer. Or I mean, we could get technical about this. I think he was the third singer. He was the third uh, the third singer to record with Black Flag. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I mean, he's there, and there was a, a, a hippie bookstore called Either Or, uh, which kind of bred countercultural ideals within, you know, the people who would go on to be members of Black Flag. Keith Morris, you know, spoke to me about how important either or was it was where you would pick up hippie texts countercultural texts so this kind of thing was available and it was there and it was on you know it was on the street on the storefronts uh, and there was a place called rubicon records which um keith described as ground zero the meeting place for all his mates and um you know the the owner of that store michael piper dated uh, eric again who was 
the, uh, the as everyone describes her as the strikingly beautiful sister of Greg. And, and, and this becomes essentially the way Keith and Greg make their first real contact. So it was an interesting place, really. It is far removed from the scene that was happening in Hollywood. Uh, but in a way, I, I think it had kind of more staying power. It's like the, the, the Hollywood scene, I guess, was like a continuation of what was happening in New York, which again is is sort of very bohemian and, and, and you know, often quite sort of junkie related as well. And I don't think really, at least at this early point, like the Hermosa Beach Suburban Park, the suburban punk thing has, has got that going for it. So it is very different from the Hollywood scene. And let's hear a little black flag. This is Fix Me with Keith Morris on vocals. And that was Fix Me by Black Flag from their first release, the Nervous Breakdown EP with Keith Morris on vocals. And I've I've always gone back and forth about whether or not that song is alluding to heroin or not. I don't think it is. I think it's about fixing um, your yourself. And I just couldn't resist since you were referencing the the junkie, the heroin problems in, in Hollywood at the time. And yeah, they come out of the suburbs. And I remember the first thing I ever read about Black Flag was somebody in Rolling Stone dismissing the whole notion of punk rock coming from the same suburbs that had produced the Beach Boys. And it was definitely a sort of generational ignorance where people who had a vision of what America was like in an earlier era hadn't really caught up to what was going on in the 70s in places like Hermosa Beach and with people like Greg Ginn. And, and like you say, you mentioned that art thing and, and, and Ozzy Kadena, Des Kadena's dad. Keith Morris's dad was a local entrepreneur, but also an artsy guy. And Greg Ginn's dad is probably the most important of those bohemians. He's a college professor, but he's a, a, a tightwad or on beyond tightwad. I mean, he's, he's living this extremely frugal lifestyle, but raising this family of eccentric children. And there's Greg, who is initially a business and electronics genius, who starts a company, SST, for solid-state transistors. And he's making a living you know, making an adult living as a kid, as selling transistors through the mail. And that business goes on to finance a lot of Black Flags activities and becomes the record company. But he's also got a brother, Raymond, who is this incredibly gifted and hardworking visual artist that we know now as Raymond Pettibone. And this relationship is fascinating because, you know, the graphic art and so much of the themes of Black Flags work came from Pettibone. Everything down to the black flag bars are designed by Pettibone. And even that relationship ultimately comes to a, a bad and bitter end. I mean, was it hard to get Pettibone to talk to you about black flag? I didn't actually get to speak to Raymond. Um, Raymond was uh, one of the people who, I mean, basically it, I, I, I did speak to a lot of people for the book. Uh, this is probably worth mentioning, uh, but I wasn't able to speak to Henry. I reached out to Henry 
probably first of all, his management came back and said that, you know, Henry doesn't really talk about Black Flag. And the, the reason for that is, is that every time he does do an interview about Black Flag, he essentially says, I was just the fourth singer in Black Flag. It's Greg's band. Everything great about that band is because of Greg. Everything that band achieved is because of Greg. And then Greg will shoot back in an interview somewhere saying, fucking Henry taking over, you know, taking credit for all my work again. Uh, so he was, he was like, gave sort of implicit blessing to the project, but said he wouldn't be available. Uh, I didn't hear back from Raymond. Uh, I reached out to him and I did keep reaching out multiple times to speak to Greg uh, and didn't get to speak to him, which was really frustrating because he, he is such a, a fascinating figure in the story. And, and also, uh, you know, just, just a lot of people, as we spoke, a lot of the interviews I did speak to uh, had kind of unhappy stories of their experience with him, and I felt I needed to get his side of the story. Uh, and indeed, there were some there were some accounts that I, I ended up not putting into the books. I just thought it was unfair without being able to speak to Greg uh, and get his side of the story. But I mean, it is it is a really fascinating relationship. I mean, the family itself is is just. Really, really interesting. There's, um, there is the aforementioned Erica, and there's a younger brother called Adrian, who uh, everyone I spoke to said basically he just likes to party and and was was basically very different, even to his two very different brothers. But um, it, it is interesting how sort of both Raymond and Greg are just propelled into art, but in a really interesting and slightly twisted way. Um, you, you're totally right about uh, Raymond's art being such a key part of the Black Flag story and, and, and how Black Flag have continued onwards and, and have, have continued to be a fascinating thing to further generations. Because if you think how like Black Flag's cultural identity, if you like, has spread out across generations, uh, you know, the, the Black Flag bars is a very important part of it because how many kids have got those tattoos? Like, I mean, I interviewed Dave Grohl about 15 years ago and, and, and he told me like, his first tattoo was a black flag tattoo that he gave himself in middle school with like a, a ballpoint pen and, and a, a compass, the pin from a compass. And uh, he showed it to me and it was just like three very pathetic sort of greenish bars. And, and I asked him why there were only three and he said, because it really hurt, uh, which is fair enough. But, <laughs> you, you know, I, those bars, like the T-shirts, his, his artwork that was used in flyers and album sleeves and ended up, being used on countless T-shirts is is definitely this iconography that is uh, in in a very in a very real sense it's it's the music and the the invective of of Black Flag expressed in art although that's kind of reductive as well it, it removes Raymond's voice from the story and I think that's part of his frustration is is basically his artistic impulses and expressions were being uh, sort of subjuncted underneath Black Flag and under Greg. Uh, you can understand like he creates all this artwork and it gets seen as merely being a part of the black flag story that that probably uh ground down in him although from what people were telling me the actual reason for the break between them was that um they ended up cutting up his original artwork to to use in in flyers and in album sleeves and t-shirts and stuff like that and he he took offense at that but you know raymond's work is 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 very powerful and and problematic and, and powerful because it's problematic and offensive but offensive purposefully and, and impish and uh 
it, it's there to provoke and it, it is it is really striking and it, it yeah he's he's arguably gone on to be the most financially successful of anyone involved in this story uh with his art and, and with the acclaim he's enjoyed as a fine artist in the years that have followed and um you know he's he's a, he's a fascinating character really Absolutely. And let's let's hear another Black Flag song and kind of catch up a bit. This is No Values with their second singer, Ron Reyes, who was maliciously labeled Chavo Pederast when this uh, EP came out. This is No Values. That was No Values off the Black Flag's second EP, Jealous Again, with the singer Ron Reyes, who was the second singer of the band and who appears with them in Penelope Spheris's Decline of Western Civilization documentary, which is where a lot of people saw Black Flag for the first time. I know it was the first place I saw Black Flag. And they were presented as part of the Hollywood punk scene. In that movie, you've got X, you've got The Germs, you've got um, a band called Catholic Discipline featuring a, a journalist from Slash Records that me and my friends just thought was the, you know, insane, terrible garbage. What is this crap doing in the <laughs> middle of our <laughs> Black Flag documentary? Um, but yeah, they they initially come out to the world as part of this Hollywood scene, but there's something different. There's more aggression, more violence. And from the very beginning, I mean, that, that EP Jealous Again features the song you bet we've got something personal against you, which is about their first lead singer, Keith Morris, who had quit the band and, and gone to form the Circle Jerks. And so right from the beginning, there's this hostility that's expressed through the music, but it also is churning inside and tearing the group apart. And also Greg Ginn's work ethic. This is a guy who wants his band to practice daily yeah. for hours every day. And very few people could hack it, but the, I think it speaks to the power of his vision and, and his artistry that he, you know, some bands like Joy Division or the Beatles just draw people to them. And Ginn had his brother Raymond already being a hardworking genius right there in the house. He attracts Keith Morris as his first singer. Ron Reyes is another powerful, charismatic singer. Des Kadenik follows in his wake, who's yet again another powerful, charismatic singer. And then they recruit Henry Rollins from Washington, D.C. Uh, when they start touring the country. And the most charismatic, the definitive hardcore uh, living icon of hardcore punk. And the reactions, even from their first gig, are violent. Like, the, Tell us the story of Black Flag's first ever public performance. Oh, they uh, they play uh, they play a party in someone's garage, if 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 I remember correctly, and um, yeah, it's it's the, the the details of the show are all are all in the book. Um, and my main memory of, of like Keith Morris's account is that like basically there'd been a lot of build up, and I think they played for ten minutes, and they did six songs or something like that. Uh, but you know, they were playing in a garage at a party. And uh, the garage door like came up like the curtain, uh, the stage curtain, if you will. 
and they start playing and like at the end of this 10 minute set like there there are fist fights breaking out in this uh, suburban front garden i guess and uh, these bikers have turned up and they're doing donuts on the lawn and uh, and it's just absolute chaos and it's um it really sets like the template i think for what happens at black flag shows there's something about them that does cause uh this this kind of violence in the audience and uh you know it plays out in sort of tragic comic ways my favorite a uh, live story uh of, of the band is, is when still when they've still got keith in the group and they play the Pollywog park uh festival which is just like a, a sort of sunny summer afternoon concert in in Pollywog park which is a park deep in the suburbs of southern california um uh and, and they actually only got the gig because i think the band that was supposed to be playing couldn't play and they they said that they were a fleetwood mac covers band and, and so they turned up and played and they turn up and and you know they, they're not a note from rumors is performed that afternoon they just basically play the black flag set and uh they just get pelted uh with the picnic food from the the surrounding suburban families who are so disgusted with them just constantly throw food at them and and you know they end up going back to the church which is the uh the disgusting area where they all live on mass and rehearse uh afterwards and they have a big party and they laugh about the whole thing and there's kind of a joyful like note to this kind of anarchic behavior and this this sort of disaster from the jaws of uh, success if you like they, they turn this you know afternoon in the park into a, a horrendous face-off between the norms and and whoever they are um and it does definitely sort of it, it sets a recurring thing as as they continue on and they play gigs uh, it ceases being food being pelted at them uh by suburban families it, it's fights from the audience at the band the the audience love the band but they start to believe the violence is part of it it's part of the interaction there's violence within the audience as uh these these younger punk fans called the HBs uh, after Huntington Beach, they just start getting into the rucks and the fights and they're just into the violence of the thing and expressing themselves. Uh, that becomes something that both attracts and repels new audiences. People stay away because they don't want to get beaten up at a black flag show, but then other kids are attracted because they want to be part of the melee. And also the violence expresses itself in the way that the police react to black flag shows the lapd in particular uh start turning up at, at shows uh i think frightened or, or provoked by the the young punk kids and the freedom they seem to be feeling and you know mini riots occur at black flag shows at this point and it's uh you know, th this is the thing is it's like it, it it's a negative obviously because it makes it hard for people people are reluctant at mainstream venues to book them because of all this trouble and they in, it indeed complicates their their efforts to book like community halls where they're putting on shows but at the same time like they they appear on like is it the tomorrow show i'm, I'm pretty sure it's the tomorrow show with tom um, snyder with tom snyder that's it. i was wondering obviously i only know these shows through youtube clips, youtube clips now uh because they've never been shown in the uk but they end up on on the tomorrow show with tom snyder and there's there's another i was I was just rereading it this morning, but Chuck Dukowski, their bass player, ends up being interviewed uh, by a very mainstream U.S. news program. About I think it was Good Morning America, actually, that Black Flag was on with Dukowski. Yeah, and uh, Joan Rivers, the gossip columnist, is the the person who oh, interviews fantastic. him. Well, and there we go. I mean, you, you couldn't buy that kind of 
press coverage. Do you know what I mean? If you were just a band that had great tunes and you put on great performances, uh, you're not going to appear on Good Morning America. This is this is at a point where like they couldn't play any legit venues in Hollywood or or in indeed Huntington Beach because these venues were only interviewed interested in covers bands that played songs from Top 40 Radio. There is no way for a, a, an underground by, brand like this to break through except through causing this kind of notoriety. Infamy becomes their fame and um, it's very much a double-edged sword because you know as the years progress you know touring becomes a dogged slog like i mean i i loved reading uh get in the van as a teenager but my overall message from that was don't ever be in a band like yes. that was just like be <laughs> in the audience don't try don't try and be in a band because it is horrible uh, you'll end up hating all your friends and everyone in the audience will be terrible. Like Rollins' first gig, uh, I think he gets his nose broken by someone in the audience and then someone else jumps on stage and sets his nose so he can perform the rest of the show. Um, it, it's, <laughs> Let's it's take a quick sponsor break and, and continue. And I want to talk about Chuck Dukowski and his role uh, in the band when we come back. And yeah, the 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 takeaway from getting the van and Rollins tends to over to self dramatize. So to take it with a grain of salt. At the same time, they did endure incredibly grueling experiences. And the bands that followed in their path, because Black Flag leaves LA and gets in their van and just tours the country. And along with REM and DOA out of Vancouver pioneer this underground network like the, an underground railroad of squats and skate parks and vfw halls and moose lodges and people's houses with big garages and people friendly kids who will let bands sleep on their floor and it becomes this network that ultimately kind of morphs into Lollapalooza in the 90s, but it's a hard decade of slogging and black flag is right there on the front lines and they, you know, one thing that I didn't get as a kid coming along from the sticks, one of those places, Black Flag did play Amarillo, Texas, and we got to see him on their very last tour. And it was everything you'd expect, overwhelmingly loud, incredibly violent, really scary, great show. But I didn't realize how close they came to mainstream popularity. Like there was a point in I think 80 or 81 when they played to 3,000 people in the Santa Monica College Auditorium, Civic Auditorium. That's this, roughly the same crowd that saw the Rolling Stones first shows in America at that same right. venue. And well, Black sorry, Flag... I was just going to say that that point is really interesting as well because they almost, I think you're probably leading up to this, but yeah. like they're almost signed to a major label. There's a distribution company uh, which is vaguely related to, to Universal Records, which is interested in distributing this music. And, and then at some point, you know, in, in a pre-echo, if you like, of Charlton Heston uh, turning up at a Warner Brothers uh, stockholders meeting and, and reading aloud the lyrics to Cop Killer by uh, Ice-T's Body Count, there, there's kind of an internal repulsion within the company of this band that they've signed because of all the controversy and uh and so they refuse to distribute the album because they believe it is quote unquote anti-parent which is literally the best thing i think a punk band could ever have to put on the the uh 
the, the, the sticker on their album is to say this album is anti-parent officially this record is anti-parent that's just the, the most fantastic <laughs> boast you could have um, but they did and and that's why you know it, Greg Kinn is essentially a reluctant record mogul at this point and and you know he puts out Black Flag's earliest EP on on SST records because uh, because Bomp don't have the money the, the label who were originally going to release it don't have the money to put it out and uh, and he ends up putting out Black Flag's records subsequent to that on SST because they were trying to get a major label to put them out and the major label refused to do it. So it is um, it is definitely an interesting point. And, and the band are actually elite, like legally not allowed to release records for a long period. Like the, their debut album Damaged comes out in 81 and then they aren't able to release another album you know, officially until 1983, they put out a compilation album called Everything Goes Black or Everything Went Black uh, in that period, which is a collection of early tracks with uh, unreleased early tracks with Keith Morris, uh, Ron Reyes and Des Cadena on it. it, literally just to keep themselves going. And I believe they even ended up getting sued for having put that out, even though they didn't put Black Flag's name on the cover. So they were definitely like, you know, countercultural revolutionary in a very profound way they had to fight and you, you know you mentioned how hard it was for them to to slog around they 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 built like the 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 pathway that every band after them toured around america they they built the touring network that underground bands followed after that but they built it with their bare hands it was a case of you know opening up uh yellow pages or whatever and phoning around all these different places and booking community halls and, and wherever they could. Any band that they became friends with, they, you know, they, they started a, 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 you know, a, a reciprocal relationship to try and help each other tour. I mean, it, it's amazing how much didn't exist before they started. And, and you do feel like whatever, whatever issues people subsequently have with Greg Ginn uh, and, and everyone else involved in SST, you, you have to just have absolute admiration for what they built. And, um, I'm guessing this is the direction we're going in, but it is important to to say that Greg didn't do it on his own, and, and one of the major people on his side, as well as people like Joe Carducci, uh, is is Chuck Dukowski, who was the bass player in Black Flag, and is you know just someone held in absolute esteem by everybody I spoke to. Like there there were grudges held between members of this group, but everybody regards Chuck as being the dude. And let's hear another Black Flag song. This is Six Pack, which was one of their few tracks to break through on college radio, which was kind of the only broadcast medium that was at all open to this kind of punk. This is Six Pack. Six Pack. It was actually TV Party that was the 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 sort of underground college hit. But Six Pack had that same sort of tongue in cheek ethos, kind of making fun of themselves, kind of making fun of bro culture, which wasn't named that yet. Um, and that's something that went away when Henry Rollins comes in the band. It, it becomes a much more serious thing, and part of that is a response to 
this incredibly negative legal battle that they've been through. I mean, they had to they they hired a law firm, but they had to do all the filings and all the legal research, and they ended up beating Unicorn Records. I mean, crushing Unicorn Records in this because they were so smart, hardworking, and aggressive, which is just a theme of Black Flags. But at one point, they have this sort of commercial package of the iconic punk rock shaved head frontman and Henry Rollins, these anthemic songs like Rise Above that are everything any meathead who's decided to get into punk rock would want, plus mm-hmm. songs like TV Party and Six Pack that are tongue-in-cheek and funny and even girls might like. This is this was something you saw in the hardcore scene was when these big bruisers came into the scene, they literally chased off all the girls with, with the violent antics in the pit. But then after Black Flag comes back, there's suddenly – it's a whole different band. Chuck Dukowski's gone. I mean, talk about ripping the heart out of a band. And, and his signature bass sound, which was such a key part of the Damaged album, is gone. And, and you know, My War comes out, and it's dark, and it's slow, and it's ugly. Then they put out Family Man, which is half instrumental tracks, half spoken word. And, and for – People like me who were just getting into punk, even though it was you know seven, eight years later, because the corporate media didn't really disseminate these messaging other than things like Joan Rivers on Good Morning America or the Quincy TV show that would have these alarmist, yeah. you know, panics, moral panics about punk rock. But you know, you've got a whole country full of kids that's just hearing about punk rock and oh, it's about short songs and short hair and straightforward. And here's our punk champions putting out a a long self-indulgent album of spoken word poetry and instrumentals. I mean, absolutely screwed with everybody's head so much. Talk about that second era of Black Flag and yeah. how how the first era of it fell apart. Well, I think you know, I think you're right. I mean, I think the difficult the, the difficult existence of that kind of uh, the lawsuit and and them having to operate underground was a big part of why it fell apart. You know, I, a lot of people talk about what, uh, one of the great Black Flag albums is the one that no one ever heard, which is the 1982 demos. Um, Post-damaged, like the band is uh, Rollins up front, Gin on guitar, obviously, uh, but Des Cadena's there as the second guitarist, uh, he, you know, having ceased being the singer. And uh, there's a really interesting interaction there. Like Greg is basically freed up to do all these weird, nutty, fantastic, you know, virulent guitar solos. Um Chuck's still on bass for a lot of it, and um, and, and you know Chuck Biscuits is the drummer, and, and it is this really interesting period. And some of the early, you know, some of the first half of of My War is is recorded in these demos. Uh, I mean, because the thing about My War is 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 that it's I, I mean I I think it's an amazing record. It's a real it's a real Marmite record, which is a reference to a, a sandwich spread we have over here in the UK, which people either love or hate. Uh, it, it's definitely my war is what it is it's it's an intense take it or leave it record and and primarily i think because of the second side because you know if you think about beat my head against the wall i would say it's just as great a pop song as as tv party or six pack i think it's a a a really fun double-edged tune uh, but it's that second side of Black Flag, which is just slow and dirty. But it, it's also phenomenally influential. I think the second side of the Black Flag album, you know, nods towards like a, a kind of sludge metal continuum that develops in the underground 
after Black Flag have gone. But it is also Black Flag like squandering this this pop potential moment. And I think you know there was just so much belligerence uh, in there, and 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 a lot of conflict within the band. Like Chuck getting sacked is a terrible moment, really. And I think it's a betrayal of Chuck. And I know Chuck feels, or, or you know, the, when I spoke to him for the book, I think he felt. It was a very painful moment and one that he, you know, would possibly have dealt with in a different way uh, if he had a second a, a second go round. But it's also, uh, you know, evidence, if you like, of Gin taking people out who threatened his power within the group. And, um, you know, that that's, I feel, where the conflict that tears the band apart comes from. Um, but it is musically really conflicted as well. You know, I mean, that's another thing. Black Flag, are, uh, you know, this legendary band, but I, I feel like the music of some of those later records is is kind of hard to hard to get excited about in places and hard to defend in others there are definitely fantastic moments later on in the catalog and I, yeah I, I think in my head which is the final record and was originally planned to be um a uh, a greg Ginn solo album is 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 a really fine record but a lot of that stuff in the middle there from my war uh and until in in my head, the, the records made between those two albums, they 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 came out in in like a burst and were, were cut by this version of the group, uh, which featured Kira Rosler and on bass and Bill Stevenson on drums, and it was definitely a different group, and it, it was quite metal as well. I think that's the thing is people expected them to stay on this this punk group, and and Greg's interests. I mean, this is a guy who used to be a deadhead, so he definitely likes a guitar solo or two, but he was definitely interested in heavy metal. And I remember speaking to Mark Arm uh, of Mudhoney about his sort of seeing the band during these later tours, and he said that he came up to to sort of Greg on one of the, the last shows they played at Seattle and said, like, why does the band sound like this? Like, what, what what's happening? And, and Greg said, you should listen to Dio, man. And... and uh, Mark goes, what's Dio? And Greg goes, Dio's Latin for God. And obviously it was, it was actually a, a, a reference to Ronnie James Dio. They, they, the flag were going down a very different route. But again, it's, it's an interesting kind of anticipation of what would follow. This, this blend of punk and, and metal will basically become you know, the sound of a very lucrative and successful and I would say you know creatively fascinating corner of American underground rock from the late 80s through the early 90s like you know punk versus punk meets metal is is a way of describing Nirvana it's a way of describing Melvin's it's a way of describing Soundgarden and it it does in a sense all stem from Black Flag it's it's fascinating really and and also there's the whole college rock sort of scene that comes out earlier in the mid 80s a lot of it on sst records and mm. you know michael azarad's book um our band could be your life starts with black flag and and musically black flag's kind of an odd fit because you don't have the bad brains you don't have the misfits you don't have sod in that book you have husker du and you know bands like that 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 the replacements that are somewhere between punk and college rock, which is kind of what REM epitomized uh, at the time. But because of SST records, I mean, in 1984, SST puts out Meat Puppets 2, which is this deranged, Grateful Dead, Neil Young-influenced hardcore punk album. They put out Zen Arcade, which is this 
incredibly ambitious hardcore punk psychedelic concept album. They they um, put out Double Nickels on the Dime by the Minutemen, which is this incredible smorgasbord of American music, funk and Tejano and 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 punk and art rock, and you know. SST becomes this thing, and, and then they put out The Bad Brains, Eye Against Eye. They put out Soundgarden, Ultra Mega OK. It becomes nearly a major label. But there's a quote in there from Joe Carducci, who's one of the key players behind the scenes. He's a key player at SST Records, along with um, Chuck Dukowski and a guy named Mugger, who's one of their roadies, mm-hmm. that he thinks – Again, in a way, sabotaged SST by flooding the market with so many records. I mean, at one point they put out over two 150 records in a year, I think, in '89, which is more than twice what some major labels put out. I mean, it's it's almost as if Gin was deliberately deconstructing his legacy in real time as it happened. I mean, you know, we've seen many rock stars do this, like John Lennon with Yoko Ono, kind of a big fart in the face of all Beatles fans and, <laughs> and, and, you know, kind of wants to restore himself as, oh, that Lennon, you know, his, his sort of more comfortable place as a, as a social prankster rather than being this beloved figure. But Ginn never puts on the crown. They never become the big punk band in America that, possibly they could have been. They never become the big um, punk turned major label that SST Records easily could have been. And it's just fascinating to me that there's this, it's like you said, it was Gin's need to control, which is another dynamic you see in band after band, whether it's Ray Davis crushing Dave Davis, you know, into the ground decade after decade, or, you know, Kurt Cobain just giving everybody the silent treatment and Nirvana if they try to suggest an idea or a song. There's always this, you know, some bands are democracy, some bands are dictatorships, and there's this tension innate to the concept of a band. But again, what what's your final take on Greg Ginn? I mean, well, it's it's hard to say. I mean, there's you know, just just to say very quickly, you know, as far as I'm concerned, like SST released probably the best music in America in the '80s that wasn't hip hop, like uh, Meat Puppets, to uh, Zen Arcade. Uh, You're Living All Over Me by Dinosaur Jr., uh, Double Nickels on the Dime, uh, a few other records that I'm going to feel very sorry for not remembering. The the Screaming Trees records on SST are personal favourites of mine that the band themselves seem to hate, but like they they just put out some amazing stuff. And you're right, there's there's definitely uh, Sister by Sonic Youth there. I almost forgot that one. Um, There is a very strong case to be made that they could have made that big crossover. There's a strong case to be made that Black Flag could have been crowned, as you say, uh, or or had some kind of crossover. I think really, and and I I don't want to sound too flippant about this or insensitive, but I I do genuinely believe that a lot of artists or or even the the majority of artists are driven uh, by emotional uh, complexity, verging on you know instability I, I feel a lot of artists aren't healthy emotionally and that's what fuels the art they aren't they don't fit they aren't the brick that fits in the right place and i feel with with gin he could have perhaps been you know the the big crossover mogul record label he could have been you know, sst could have been sub pop or one of these other labels that's thriving in the 21st century from from these underground roots and black flag you know could could have been an enduring success on some level but something within him won't let it happen and i would i dare say that he doesn't want those things i think that's the thing is that there is 
there is this countercultural perception. And it, it, it's interesting that you mentioned Cobain because, you know, I think Kurt had everything handed to him on a plate, uh, basically via his, his huge talent and also the fact that, that his band were actually uh, the most sellable version of, of this sound. Uh, but he was repulsed by the industry. He was repulsed by, and he's not alone. It's it's like you, you, numerous artists I've spoken to. They come to this moment where they can have everything. They can sign. They can sign the the dotted line and have everything come to them. And in the end, they're repulsed by it. And I don't know why Greg wouldn't have it, but he wouldn't. He didn't want it. And and it's funny. It's like when you think about the later reunions or, or most of which are, are complete disasters from a, the, the perspective of everyone I've spoken to uh, Greg is the stumbling point like Greg is the guy who decides when they do these reunion shows just after Henry's done his reunion shows for the West Memphis Three he's the guy who decides that they should have you know Dale Nixon the uh, the, the the tape of bass playing playing on stage uh, when they play he's the guy who who you know tells Keith Morris like you know we played these songs too fast when when we did them first of all we should play them slower this time like he's just this I don't know it would be so easy like for us Saturday morning uh, Monday morning quarterbacks to say this is all you need to do and you could be a big success but he can't do it. And on some level, when you think of someone as capable and as talented as Greg, it must just be that he doesn't want to do it. I think so. And let's get our last song snippet in. This is written by Chuck Dukowski, but I think it sums up everything they're saying. This is the song you were talking about earlier from the 1982 demos. This is Beat My Head Against the Wall. Beat my head against the wall one more time. Women in the mainstream is such a lame, lame dream, and that's beat my head against the wall. And and yeah, that gets to the inherent contradictions of trying to make something like Black Flag into a popular art. And this is the kind of thing I used to just agonize over. Why couldn't they be more popular? Why couldn't all my metal friends like punk? Blah, blah, blah. And then when we lived through grunge and all my metal friends did like punk, I suddenly was like, oh my God, they've ruined everything <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly what you don't want at a punk show is all the normal people coming in and ruining it. And it happens again and again. And from talking to Ted Joya, I finally understood. He, he puts it all out in his book, Music and Subversive History. Something that's authentically dangerous, like Black Flag, can never become massively popular except at great, great cost. And even just to reach the level of cultural impact that they did, which is significant, they paid a lot of costs, but I think had they had that mainstream moment, you would have had Kurt Cobain-type situations. I mean, look at the actuarial tables on grunge. Cobain, Lane Staley of Alice in Chains, Chris Cornell and Soundgarden at a point when you think he's made it, you know, and, and he's he's mature and he's grown and he's got kids and he kills himself. It's, you know, I think yeah. Gang maybe was smarter than everybody else and just walked away and and – 
Sometimes I wonder if it's a put on, if he's ruining these things be just to keep it under control and to keep it contained and safe and something he can live with. That I mean, that that does make a certain amount of sense. I mean, I will say as well, though, I mean, yeah, Greg does not play well with others as far as I can tell. Like, I mean, I think there, there are definite kind of behavioral things there that prevent on a practical level this stuff happening. And also, you know, I mean, this is the thing I remember. I had a very long conversation with with Joe Carducci uh, for the book and he was he was a fantastic interviewee but like towards the end of it I was just sort of expressing my frustration about SST if you like which is that you know and, and this we did this interview in in sort of the mid zeros or the, the late zeros and the music industry wasn't quite in the impoverished state it is now although it wasn't doing so well then but I just felt like you know uh, the reissues uh, industry was, was still relatively healthy back then and I felt like okay well we've had you know, multiple disc reissues with lots of deluxe stuff and remastering and extra tracks, outtakes and stuff of, of loads of shitty records. But like, I want to hear like, I, I don't know, I, I wanted to hear basically, I wanted Huskadoo CDs that didn't sound like garbage. Um, yep. And and I wanted all of this and I wanted, you know, and the, and the few artists who had managed to rest their catalogue back off of SST which is, I guess, I mean, literally just Dinosaur Junior and um, Sonic and Youth. Puppets. Yeah, and Sonic Youth. Uh, you know, it, it they had managed to like remaster their record, like the CD of um, "You're Living All Over Me" on SST uh, by Dinosaur Junior. Had like a, a tiny gap between cracked and sludge feast when on the vinyl it flows into one track, and you just feel this is so careless. Like, why not treat this stuff properly? And Joe was just like, "No, it sounds fine." Sounds good. You don't need it any louder. And and I think on some level he's right. It's like I'm going in here with like some, you know, uh, capitalist fan fanboy thing of wanting everything to be nicely packaged, and that's not what it is. Like this stuff isn't there to be nicely packaged. And you know, it, it's funny. Like you know, my friend Aaron North from the Icarus Line and Nine Inch Nails, who you know was a big help in doing this book and drove me around Hermosa Beach when I was re uh, researching it. Yeah, he was like, I remember him saying, it's good that you're doing this book because, like, kids don't know about Black Flag and they need to know about Black Flag. But there's something about Black Flag that eludes entering, like, a mainstream pantheon in any way. It's always going to be viral. It's always going to be this thing that you kind of have to find out, like some occult secret. Like, you know, you're not going to be able to find these things easily. Uh, it's not – they're not going to be a Ramones T-shirt as much as there are loads of Black Flag tattoos and black flag t-shirts out there there's something about it that's just too underground and and i dare say dangerous i think i think whatever it is that scared the shit out of people about black flag in the 80s is still terrifying and like my war is still a deeply disturbing record and you know for different reasons slip it in is a really uncomfortable thing to listen to and there is yes there's a power to that there's there's something unsettling about it which is real it isn't just a put on and i think that is an excellent final word stevie chick the book is spray paint the walls the story of black flag and it has been an absolute delight talking to you about one of my favorite and most emotionally problematic bands <laughs> <laughs> yes uh you can love them but they won't love you back that's all i can say <laughs> absolutely <laughs> thanks stevie no worries cheers mate Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, 
Nate welcomes Mark Doyle to discuss the kinks, their relationship to British culture, African-American music, and class. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 